Welcome to Avatar with Academics. My name is Sam Mulberry, and I have never watched Avatar The Last Airbender. And I'm Annie Berglund, and I have watched it before. Annie, we have made it to Book 3, Fire, Chapter 8, The Puppet Master. The Halloween special. Yeah, and it's so interesting, because in our last episode, we spent a lot, or I, I spent a lot of time speculating on what I thought The Puppet Master would be, and it was not at all <laughs> what I expected. But what I will say about this episode... Um, what I loved about this episode is that there are elements of waterbending that I, that you, if you think about it for even a little bit, you start to think, huh, shouldn't some of these other things be possible? Mm. And I just assumed that the show was going to be like, yeah, let's just not go there. But then instead they did an episode where it's like, oh yeah, that's possible. Let's, let's actually play this out. Um, and it, it opens up, this episode opens up a lot of doors and a lot of dark doors. Yes. And questions, not just about waterbending, but all of the elements and how uh, they could be corrupted in different mm -hmm. ways. Like I had a lot of questions at the end of like, yeah, I mean, how could you, how could you extend some of the themes of this episode into other types of bending, which I know now we're getting really vague because we mm -hmm. haven't talked about anything yet. Um, but Oh, also, um, I was curious, Sam, at the top here. Are you a horror movie fanatic? Do you have you seen a lot? Um, what are Not you, a what's fanatic. Your history? Yeah, that's okay. a great question. That's a good like video store question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not a fanatic. Like I'm not like a. I have to like I'm. I, I have to see this movie or this movie when it comes out. I've watched my share of them. Um, mm. I I actually tend to be a fan of like bad horror movies, like kind of. <laughs> Um, campy 80s horror movies I really like. Uh, um, I'm not a I'm not like a, a big like gore fan, but um, there I definitely I think I think horror movies can ask really big interesting questions. So if, since I mentioned video store, we watched um, I don't know probably five six months ago we watched a movie called Let the Right One In. Have you ever seen this? No, I've been wanting to though. Uh, isn't it vampires? It is. is. That... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's it it feels very rooted real world. I mean, that mm. actually that movie is pretty pretty gory at, at times uh to a certain degree, but but with a purpose. Um and there's a, there's an American remake of it. Now I'm I'm th I'm trying to remember where the original was filmed. I think it's Scandinavian. I can't remember if it's Norwegian mm. or Swedish, but like it is or maybe it's Danish. It is really, really good. Um, and so, like, I love a movie like that because it allows you or forces you to ask some big questions. And I feel like if this is the Avatar entry into the horror genre, it does a great job of doing precisely that, asking some big, big questions. Yes, there are definitely parts of this episode where I wrote down in my notes, Dracula, exclamation point, or... Frankenstein, like these questions that have been around since the genre of horror was like first kind of established. That's like mostly ethical dilemmas surrounding like what you do when you have power and like how can power be wielded for good and then how can it be wielded against <clears throat> unequals and like basically how extreme can you go uh, with the power given to you? But and, yeah, and, and 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 how far does the and, and and Avatar's already asked this question a lot. It asks it with in the original Jet episode, like how far can you go with revenge as your explanation, mm. as your motivation? Um, yes. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and 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 does 
does guilt or the motivation for revenge can that be is that transferable can you pass that on from generation to generation mm, mm-hmm. or to or even not even generation but even within one generation can you pass that on to people who aren't complicit or like the people you're acting against how complicit do they need to be in the horrors of society for you to want to seek yep. revenge you know yep and, and totally right. There are moments of Jet where it's like when he was about to destroy that village of just Fire Nation people, like families. And uh, and you're like, this isn't even soldiers anymore. This is just civilians. But anyway, we're getting so far ahead. Well, actually, there's a couple of things I want to point to up top. Yeah, um, for sure. And, and I think what we were just saying about, about this sort of echoing some of the big questions of Jet uh, actually is, is one of my other big takeaways from this, which is this episode so consciously is revisiting themes or structures from past episodes, but saying, well, let's do it with new eyes or let's put a little bit of twist on this idea. So one thing it's pointing to the fact that characters have, these characters have learned from their experiences. So it's like, they realize we're revisiting a similar, a similar situation sometimes. So, Uh Um, I'm going to throw out a couple that maybe we can track a little bit as we go through. I think Jet is a big one. Yep. You know, that, that sort of theme of revenge. Um, I think the Avatar State episode, um, you mentioned this when we were talking about this episode off air um, a few days ago, but there's definitely like a degree to which this is Katara's version of the Avatar State episode. Um, mm-hmm. She, she uh, a new power is opened up to her that she mm-hmm. needs to wrestle with. Um, structurally, it's interesting to think how much this looks like Sokka's master as a structure in the episode where it's like one of the characters goes off with this other person and the other three are doing this other thing. Um, And then I think really consciously there, this, and it falls maybe almost in the exact same spot that this episode falls in season one, um, the spirit world episode. Um, uh, There's even this sense that, that Aang is like, well, I solved the problem with the, Hey, bye this way. I'm yep. sure this is the same problem. You have disappearing people. You have all these. I mean, that, that it's like they're trying to solve the same mystery again, but realizing maybe the uh, the monster is different this time. Yes, I have a couple other things I want to track along those lines, especially with the Hey Bye episode. Is very straight up. It's not even alluding to. They talk about the environment in this episode again, and it's just an assumption that when something goes wrong it's likely going to involve the way that people are destroying the environment around them. And Aang even has this moment where he says, helping people, that's what I do. Like as the avatar, that's my mission. And so uh, we have this extension of not only like the great power people can wield to harm the environment, but like any living thing. Um, I think it's really important to even tears being shed in this episode over the destruction of the environment. Um, There's like, I didn't realize it until maybe the third watch or so. I wasn't really looking at it through the lens of like environmental ethics at all. Um, but I think that that's a really important one too. So does this, uh, I was telling you right before we started, this is, I think in my daughter's top three favorite episodes, I'm curious in the broader avatar community, is this a lauded episode? Is this something, is this a loved episode? It seems like it. Honestly, Sam, I spent a lot of time on Reddit this week, like looking over people's comments, like looking at um, the subreddit 
the last airbender and reading people's um, takes on it. And most of the time it was really favorable. People were like, this is actually very terrifying. Many people were saying it was their favorite Halloween special they've ever seen on TV before. I mean, I just got through watching The Conjuring 3 a couple weeks ago and like, Man, you were saying like you you've watched some horror. I have watched so many for someone with a very low threshold for like like I get scared really easily, right? So like I watched The Conjuring 3 wasn't that scary. Watch this episode and it's like deeply disturbing. Like they do a really good job of like playing with imagination, right? Because they don't actually show you a lot of the terrible things. You're just left to imagine them. And I think that that's like the sweet spot of any horror movie. It's like um, everything that's happening outside and you just see the result of it. Uh, so yeah, I, it seems like across the board, people really like this one. Well, and I will say one of the things, if we think about this horror construction, um, part of the way that a, that a horror movie is set up is it starts with, they often start with, things seem normal and peaceful. And these are these people who are going away on a vacation to this cabin, or they're going off to summer camp or they're whatever. And then things turn dark, but you have just this little moment to buy into these characters before the darkness happens here. We have basically two and a half seasons of television where we're invested in these characters. And then now they're thrown into a horror movie. So that, that actually changes that a little bit too. that, that, that buildup is, is very long. Yes. It's so true because I feel like whenever I've watched a horror movie, especially when it's like a sequel or like a third installment, it's like the characters oftentimes just don't feel built out. And so it's like you go in and you expect the jump scares and like, oh, okay, that was helpful. Or that was like, that made it an experience. But as far as caring about somebody living or dying, like sadly, I don't think horror movies really pull that off except for some really exceptional ones. And you're totally right here. We've spent so many hours with each of these people. And so to th see them experience like supernatural kind of elements is really jarring. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let, let's jump into okay, yeah. the, let's jump into the episode. So um, I think this is only the second time in the history of avatar with academics that, I, I want to talk about the previously on Avatar because <laughs> this is one of the more loaded, uh, one of the more loaded previouslys where they're like, let we need to remind you of all kinds of stuff before we get to this episode. Uh, and I will say, I'm again, it's a kid show. I'm pretty proud of myself that when the previously on started, I started to already put pieces together. Like, oh, we're going in in some interesting directions here because it's loaded with water bending foreshadowing right mm -hmm. so we see they talk about the power of the moon they have the the scene where ua and katara are talking about how the moon brings power to the waterbenders and the moon taught waterbenders how to waterbend we see the the old um fire navy warship frozen up in the ice from the uh, southern water tribe we hear katara say that uh she's the only waterbender in the whole south pole uh from early in season one um, and then we also see Katara realizing that she can bend her sweat mm. uh, and using that to es escape from uh, from the jail cell. And it's like all of those pieces matter a great deal to this episode. Absolutely. And especially because uh, another thing to track in this episode is Aang doesn't bend once in this episode. He doesn't bend any elements at all. So this is like a Katara episode straight from previously on. You know the entire time it's going to be about Katara leveling up or um, maybe leveling up. 
Wow, you just blew my mind. You're you're right. I wonder, is this the only episode where Aang doesn't bend? I think maybe. I I would have to check. I don't know. It's got to be. It's got to be because he sometimes does it for no reason, just to like yeah. move around. Yeah, that I mean, is. We, he huh. has so few lines in this. Like it's really just the trio of him, Toph, and Sokka, kind of exploring and being detectives, right? Like he doesn't ever bend. Yeah. That's so interesting. And it actually, it, it is a testament to, they're reminding us that because they're in the Fire Nation, that that actually is a way to kind of hold Aang's power in check. Because, like, mm. he can't just publicly bend. So, and he, so he doesn't have, so he ha- they have to try to figure things out in other ways. All right. So, uh, the episode then opens on uh, the full moon at night. Um, which is going to be a uh, important thing in this episode. Uh, and we see the gang sitting around a campfire telling scary stories. So Sokka is telling his story about a haunted sword and nobody seems remotely impressed. Toph jokes that the water tribe slumber parties must really stink. If this is what like water tribe ghost stories sound like, I like that. This is clearly at least the second story that Sokka has told. They're all about swords. I like yeah. that. He's like super into swords at this point. I know it's so cute. It's like he wore, he like put on that hat during his training a couple episodes ago, and he's like, now it's just fully who he is. Like, right. He just, he's the sword master. <laughs> um, so then Katara announces that she has a true Southern Water Tribe story. And, uh, and Sokka's like, oh, is this one of those, this person that I knew, cousins, grandmothers, friends, something? You know, she's like, no, this happened, this happened to mom. Uh, and then instantly, everyone she has everyone's attention. Here's a story that she tells. She says, one winter, when mom was a girl, a snowstorm buried the whole village for weeks. A month later, mom realized she hadn't seen her friend Nini since the storm. So mom and some others went to check on Nini's family. When they got there, no one was home. Just a fire flickering in the fireplace. While the men went out to search, mom stayed in the house. When she was alone, she heard a voice. It's so cold and I can't get warm. Mom turned and saw Nini standing by the fire. She was blue like she was frozen. Mom ran outside for help, but when everyone came back, Nini was gone. Nini's house stands empty to this day, but sometimes people see smoke coming from the chimney, like little Nini still trying to get warm. And we see the group just sort of sitting there in fear as they hear this story. I love that Avatar has ghost stories in it. Like, I just love that. That, like, I mean, we already know that the supernatural and the natural kind of, like, blend in a lot of episodes. But I like the idea that, like, ghosts can exist and there can be ghost stories and, like, people actually kind of believe them. It also reminds us that, like, and we probably needed this reminder that these are kids. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that yes. these are kids sitting around a campfire. And if you get a- if you get any group of, of people sitting around a campfire, pretty soon it's going to move into storytelling and, and often ghost stories and things like that. So I, I really like that as the setup, to this, especially if this is their kind of Halloween horror episode. It's a great start. It's a great way to kind of oh. kick it off. Yes, there's some great tropes. Just like it's almost almost all the scenes are at night. Almost always the moon is there, the full moon is there, like, which is a plot point, but also creepy. Mm. There's like creaking noises. We have like a haunted house kind of later, like just they, they really hammed it up, but in a great way. Well, and one of the things to pay attention to something I almost never put down on my notes and I at least 
have it twice in here is the score in this yes. episode. There is, uh, they do a lot of really fun things with the music to just mm-hmm. kind of amp up like, like really on the nose horror tropes, um, <laughs> which is which is pretty fun. So as Katara finishes her story, all of a sudden Toph seems startled. She puts her hand on the ground and announces, I hear people under the mountain and they're screaming. And Sokka thinks she's just telling a ghost story, but Toph insists that she's hearing something. And then she says, it suddenly stops. Um, And it's interesting because I've been revisiting old episodes and I'm always interested in how people, even when they're at tension with Toph in in uh, episodes like The Chase, even then, when Toph says she senses something or feels something, they snap into, we got to listen to Toph. So it's interesting that this one, because maybe because they're telling ghost stories, that they, they don't naturally believe her, even though they always do. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, she also is somebody who likes to pull people's legs. I don't know. She's like kind of, she likes to mess around with people, right? So it's like, it's hard to know in the moment if it's real or not. Right, but but uh, I, I agree that's her personality, but it seems like when she says, I sense something or I feel something mm. with that kind of concern, that yes. usually snaps them out of whatever else is happening and say, okay, we need to deal with this. Right, so, so it's a it, call to action. Right, so mm-hmm. it's interesting because of the ghost story setup, it actually creates a sensible moment when they'd say no no you don't you're just trying you know like that that's kind of, I, I like that construction so at this point they see an old woman uh, approaches from the dark forest and the gang sort of freaks out in fear she walks into the firelight and says sorry to frighten you my name is hama you children shouldn't be out in the forest by yourself at night i have an inn nearby why don't you come back there for some spiced tea and warm beds Okay, can I pause you for some imagery stuff? Yes. Okay, so she approaches the fire. This is so good. I'm like geeking out over this. She approaches the fire. She And we just heard Sokka tell a story. And in his haunted story, he talks about how um, this person is seen like lit up in the torchlight. So that already feels a little bit like foreshadowing, right? And then also when this old woman stands in front of the fire... There's this shot, and it's just for a split second, so you'd have to go back and check. Um, But I, like, pause the screen, and it is truly terrifying. She's standing above this big campfire. You can't see anyone around her. She's standing directly above it, and, like, it's lighting up her face from below. And she looks like a witch on trial. Like, she, it looks like she's being burned at the stake. Mm -hmm. You need to go back (laughs) and watch it, because it's truly terrifying. It's amazing, because I I can... I didn't notice that, but I can totally picture it. Like, yes. like I, cause I, I watched that scene a couple times. <clears throat> and then Another... like with, with the witch thing, it's like now she's inviting them to her house, which feels very Hansel and Gretel. Exactly. No, I had that same thought that it, there's this sort of like tempting them to come <clears throat> and giving them the thing that they most need, which is something to eat, a place to sleep. <clears throat> and 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 it's going to keep reiterating. So in a good Hansel and Gretel style horror story, there's always the moment where it's like, I don't know, this person seems sketchy, but then what they're offering seems great. And then you go there and it's like, okay, this seems great, but then it seems sketchy, but then that sketchy thing is explained. So maybe it's okay. And we're going to keep going through that cycle. One of the things that <clears throat> was interesting to me, um, did you recognize the voice of Hama? No. 
Did you look oh. up who this was? No, I didn't. So, so the it, it's it's actually a really famous voice actress named uh, Tress McNeil. Oh. Now, I don't know who Tress McNeil is, but but I was like, man, that it's interesting. On this show, every once in a while, you'll hear a voice, and you're like that seems like a special kind of voice mm. or something that I've heard before, or it, it, there's something about that voice. And uh, it turns out she is one of them. Um, so she's done a ton of stuff, but, but, but the one that I'll point out is, um, are, are you a, this is a weird generational question. Are you a Simpsons fan at all? I think I just missed that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So for anybody who is older than Annie, um, <laughs> Her voice, uh, Tress McNeil, is is the person who also voices Principal Skinner's mother, Agnes Skinner, oh. which is this like very distinct, uh, very funny voice that she's been on the show for forever. Um, but it was just so I was just like I, I felt vindicated and like oh that's a voice like that person is like somebody I need to look up, and it turns out that that it's a voice that I've heard many many times in my life. Yes, and uh, that's always a great feeling, and also. It's like it's like when you have an itch and you're finally able to scratch it, you know. Right, right. And, but uh, there's another voice actor, Old Man Ding, also a great one. I don't know if he's anybody I knew. Did you look him up at I, all? It's either? funny you said that. I did, and I couldn't place any. I couldn't oh. place anything as recognizable there. But I had I I actually still have it up in my search. Is like I searched who was the voice <laughs> for that person. They've done other work, but nothing that was like, oh, that's what I know them from. Yeah, um, the voice talent in this episode is great. Absolutely. So they follow Hama to her inn on a in, in a sort of a little mountainside village. She pours them tea, and Katara thanks her. Hama says, "You know, you should be careful. People have been disappearing in those woods you were camping in." Sokka asks what she means, and she shifts into her own kind of ghost storytelling voice, uh, and she says, "When the moon turns full." People walk in and they don't come out. Who wants some more tea? So it's like she's like she snaps from like ghost story to like, okay, yeah, now I'm, you know, which which is that exact cycle I was talking about, right? Where it's like this thing is troubling. And then we get back to this thing that feels normal and comforting. Yes. Uh, and the gang is just sort of staring at her in fear. And she says, don't worry. You'll all be completely safe here. Why don't I show you to your rooms and you can get a good night's rest? Just building up the tension, like simultaneously, like you said, letting our guards down, but also not that much, right? Because it's like you're now in this creaky old house in the middle of nowhere, and it feels very claustrophobic. And can I tell you a word that scares me when she says it here, which is rooms, plural, because oh. this they're, they're always together, right? And yes. and so one of the things that's happening in this inn is she said is that they they separate they all have their own rooms, yeah. which is Sam, which is also like a, a ghost story set or a, a horror movie setup, right? I legit got chills. Like I'm actually scared. This is why I can't watch horror movies. Like why did I go to The Conjuring? But that is super creepy to separate people. Like to to make them powerless without each other. Right. And, and we know that they're separated because we cut to Sokka, um, who's in bed tossing and turning. Um, for some reason, Momo is with him, and I don't really know why why that is. Um, and he hears, he, he's laying in bed, and he hears the wooden house creak. Uh, and we see him draw his sword for a moment, and he announces to Momo that he doesn't think he'll be able to sleep. 
And then we have a smash cut to Sokka sleeping super hard, drooling all over his pillow. Um, and it transitions to morning and Sokka is now fast asleep on the floor, like kind of like feet up on the bed. He's on the floor. So he must be a pretty crazy sleeper <laughs> or maybe he's one of those people. Cause normally he sleeps in a sleeping bag. So he maybe needs like to be confined by the sleeping bag. Otherwise he'll, uh, you know, maybe he's like Mike Burbig Burbiglia in that way where it's like, he's a sleepwalker or something. So, <laughs> um, and Hama comes in. And wakes him up, says, wakey, wakey, it's time to go shopping. And I thought this was a great joke. Mm. Because in the uh, Sokka's Master episode, when Sokka's depressed, the thing they do to brighten his spirits is go shopping. But now when Hama says, let's go shopping, this is not the kind of shopping that gets Sokka excited. Because we cut to Sokka being very depressed shopping. Yes, he has, like, bags under his eyes. Like, it looked like, yeah, he slept hard, but it was rough. Like, he was waking up a lot. He was scared. I didn't notice that joke. That's, like, so subtle. I love it. <laughs> so so we cut to the market, uh, and Sokka and the rest of the gang are carrying Hama's groceries uh, in the market. And uh, we see the shopkeeper smile and wave as Hama walks away with Katara. And Katara says that uh, Mr. Yao seems to have a thing for you. Maybe you should go back and see if he'll give us some free Komodo sausages. And Hama says, you would have me use my feminine charms to take advantage of that poor man. I think you and I are going to get along swimmingly. Right. So it's again, even this moment of like the threat and then we're pulling the way from the threat. Now I want to talk about the construction of this, this scene. So that's the first part of this scene. There's kind of three parts to it. Mm. And it's actually like a brilliantly constructed scene because it's like we're it's hard to because I want to use the word camera, even though this is there's not a camera because this is animated, but it's like the camera is a separate character from the characters we're watching because it wanders. So as Katara and Hama are having this conversation, they sort of walk across the screen from left to right. And the audio then picks up a conversation in the background that they, that, that they were passing. And then we push in to that conversation. Um, and it's a conversation between a shopkeeper and a customer. So it's all, I mean, there is a cut, but it's almost like there's no cut because we hear that scene start in the background and then we cut to a different mm -hmm. shot of them talking. Um, so they're having a conversation. The customer says, you won't have any ash bananas till next week. And the shopkeeper says, well, I have to send the boy to Hingwa Island to get them. And it's a two day trip. And the customer says, Oh, right. Tomorrow's the full moon. And the shopkeeper says, exactly. I can't lose another delivery boy in the woods. Um, so again, we're getting this confirmation of Hama's story that things are happening with the full moons. Um, yes. Now I will say, uh, this is not planet earth that they're on. Right. Right. Because, the full moon was last night and then the full moon is again. Like it's sort of, it's sort of like the full moon is con is convenient in this world. <laughs> Many times. Yeah. Yes. That's right. But, but, but we, but that works because we don't know how planetary motion exactly operates and what these yeah. things look like. Maybe, maybe the full moon is like a week long event or it happens really regularly. We don't know. Yeah, I, I really love the point you said about the camera work and the camera work as if it's a camera. But you know what I mean? The the kind of the narration, because that that also feels like a horror movie, because so much of the dialogue, it's like 
there's so much exposition and dialogue in a horror movie. You have to set up like why people are scared or what's happening around you. And it's kind of like things are happening to the main characters or around the main characters. Mm -hmm. Um, unless like they are going to those things. It's like, uh, these spirits or these um like people go missing like it's it's kind of surrounding you know what i mean yeah yeah and i think because of the way they do this in the market what we need to do is have confirmation of the things that hama's telling them we need to realize yeah. oh this isn't just her this is this bigger thing that's mm -hmm. happening because we use the word detective work like this is going to be an episode about detective work a little bit too um at least for the the non-katara part of the ang gang so the camera work continues though because as this conversation between the shopkeeper and the customer is happening in the background of that shot we see ang toff and Sokka walking and it's like their conversation then picks up in the from the background of that um and <clears throat> we see so we see Saka and katara walk um by having heard what the shopkeeper said so clearly they were also listening in and Saka says people disappearing in the woods weird stuff happening during full moons this just reeks of spirit world shenanigans um so i love a just that he uses the word shenanigans but b he's even thinking of the spirit world winter solstice part one he's like mm. yep this is this we've seen this before this is the the hey bye uh situation all over again so it's almost like they're ready to snap into oh we know the roles we're supposed to play which also feels like a horror movie right this reminds me of the movie scream scream is this like meta horror movie where like they're aware it's a horror movie that's aware of horror movies that has characters that are aware of horror movies this is like an avatar episode that has characters aware that they're in an Avatar episode. Because <laughs> yes. it's almost like Sokka might as well have said, oh, this feels like season one. Yes, for sure. And and like makes sense for why he had a sleepless night because his role in that episode was damsel in distress. Like he was mm -hmm. brought into the spirit world and was probably like pretty terrified that this could be a part two. Yep, yep. And just to show that, that, that we're on the right track here, Aang actually says... I bet if we take a walk around town, we'll find out what these people did to the environment to make the spirits mad. So, I mean, that, that is part of it too, is like, okay, well, we know how these things work. So the hotel must be built on a native American burial ground. Like there's like, there's formulas right. for these things. And Ang is like, well, clearly there is a formula for what's happening. Um, so, so, and, and he's, he's leaning on the spirit, uh, the spirit world formula. Uh, and then Sokka says, and then you can sew things, you can show, sew up this little mystery, lickety-split, Avatar style. And Aang says, helping people, that's what I do. So just like Sokka's role, thinks his role is damsel in distress, Aang's role is, yep, Avatar, Spirit World, Bridge, got it, we've done this before, we're just playing the hits right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then we cut to, or still in that market scene, Hama... Um, and, and Katara connecting back up with them. And Hama tells the ga gang to bring the groceries back to the inn while she runs some more errands. And Sokka comments, this is a mysterious little town you have here. And Hama responds ominously, mysterious town for mysterious children. <laughs> so creepy. <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's very wicked witchy, very Hansel and Gretel-y. Yeah. Yes. And the, oh man, we can't even do it justice, but like, her face in those moments when she's saying these things, it's like hyper close up, yep. like 
the lighting on her wrinkles like it just they really make her look sinister yeah it, yeah it's a t- it's a tight shot and she goes into this kind of voice like she did before you know like like mm. she, it's like she's playing the role too yes and it's like just loaded with hidden meaning yeah. Right. And and even even this setup of you guys go back to that creepy inn where you spent the night alone and I'm going to go do this other thing. So even that feels like a setup. Yes. Um, so we go back to the inn and the Ang gang are putting the groceries away. And Sokka says, that Hama seems strange. Like she knows something or she's hiding something. And Katara defends Hama by saying, she's a nice woman who took us in. She kind of reminds me of Grand Grand. Okay, Sam. Do you know what Katara's doing right here? Do you know what she's doing when she delivers that line? No. She's unpacking the groceries, right? She's right. like this basket of goods. And I didn't find this myself, so I have to give the Redditors on the subreddit last, the last Avatar or the last Airbender the credit. But she's unpacking these different things. And right as she says, she kind of reminds me of Grand Grand, she holds up a cabbage. Did you notice the cabbage? I didn't. If, if you pause on it, it has a human face. It's a human face of an old woman. And Redditors were saying it's either supposed to look like Grand Grand or it's again supposed to look like a witch. Like it is very obviously a woman's face on the cabbage. Oh, I have to go back and look at that. Super spooky. Little that's, details. That's really cool. That's really cool. So, um, so she says, you know, she kind of reminds you of Grand Grand. And Sokka asks about Hama's mysterious children comment, and Katara says, "Gee, I don't know. Maybe because she found four strange kids camping in the woods at night. Isn't that a little mysterious?" So again, horror movie setup. You have you have Sokka who's um, feeling distressed, and Katara just wants to explain things away logically, like, "Oh." It, all these things that like it's all in your head, right? It's it's is all in your head. And so so again, they're even playing these roles. Now, what's interesting is it's like they're playing kind of opposite roles a little bit because Absolutely. Sokka is this we one version of Sokka is scientific Sokka. I'm sure there's a rational explanation for this. But now we have Katara playing that role. It's like, no, you're just you're 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 putting too much onto this. Mm-hmm. So uh, Sokka then decides that um, that he's going to snoop around the inn. Um, and, and Katara... Go ahead. Oh, well, here we have the haunted mansion. Like, this is, like, totally... He's walking down these thin hallways. There's, like, doors upon doors. It looks endless. It's dark. There's, like, cabinets and closets and corners and, like, probably cobwebs everywhere. I really love this scene because it reminded me of, like... I've also seen Annabelle. Have you seen the Annabelle series? I have not, no. I don't know why I've seen all these, but (laughs) there's like, and this is again, one of those times when the music is really spot on. It's like this creepy children's music box. Like the ones that you, you know, like the old school music boxes. I have it in my notes. Yep. Right. And, but it's like really tense. It's like, it is like creepy clown music Mm -hmm. um, and quiet and subtle, but terrifying because what a music box is is it's it's often slowed down it's very simple it sounds childlike and it also is sometimes like a little out of tune a little off key and and because it's you have this this wind up mechanism it kind of like 
it's it's out of beat a little bit too sometimes you know if the mechanism is a little broken or it's starting to slow down that all of those things make that music sound a little more disturbing yes and this is also a horror movie trope of while the person's not here let's snoop around their stuff and there's always the constant fear of what happens if they when they get home and what and, and you know what a what do we find what happens if they get home and what if they sneak up behind us right these are all the fears that you have of your as you're doing this i don't know if you've ever snooped around someone's house but this is what it feels like right <laughs> um so Katara follows him and she's protesting that he's going to get them into trouble. We see Sokka peek into rooms, cabinets, closets. Eventually he opens up a cabinet door, which was jammed shut to reveal four life-sized puppets. Um, and Aang says, okay, that's pretty creepy. <laughs> and I will say they are pretty creepy. Puppets are creepy, but especially these huge puppets. Yes. And they functioned like a, like a jump scare. Like they, fall mm -hmm. outwards towards the crew like out of the cabinet like they were shoved in there last minute and uh again reminded me of annabelle because she's always like in the closets and uh -huh. then you like open the door oh my gosh i can picture her face but she you you don't know that she's in a closet until you open it up and there she is like in the darkness well because when you get a doll or a puppet what you also get is a kind of dead face because it's this unchanging yes. staring face and there's four of them that come out just like there's the four children, right? So, you know, it, it, it makes you start to kind of wonder, uh, but Katara is still quick to defend Hama. She says, okay, so she's got a hobby. There's nothing weird about that. It's like, maybe she's just into puppets. Now we know this episode's called the puppet master. So this is also like a, uh, maybe a, a little like slight or not sleight of hand, but like a, um, they're trying to distract us or they're trying to mm. faint in one direction. Like, oh, maybe this is the puppet master thing. Maybe she does something with puppets. It's like, okay. Because again, it's a kid show. And what the kid show, what a kid show will often do, especially a younger kid show, if they want to have a little bit of that like fear and menace in it, it's like, we think this person's scary, but it turns out we shouldn't be afraid of the stranger, right? Mm -hmm. That's uh, especially because this is a cartoon, we're conditioned to be like, Everything the show is trying to point us to is that Hama's bad, but then we realize, well, actually, she's not bad. Right. right? That's that. That's kind of where where we're conditioned. And the uh, the original name of the episode was "The Dark Side of the Moon." They actually had that as the episode for a long time, so it was like published in a book before um, the season came out, and and then last minute they changed it to "The Puppet Master." And I think you're right; like that is a much better title dark side of the moon is fun but it's cheesy and it also kind of tells you too much about the plot where puppet master keeps you wondering you know oh see uh, what i like about dark side of the moon is are you a pink floyd fan at all <laughs> um i mean i don't know <laughs> okay I mean, it's, it's a great dark side of the moon is a great album it's also the album that you can sync up with um with the wizard of oz so i would go oh, i would have yeah. gone in all kinds of weird like like, is this going to be like a weird Wizard of Oz type thing? Is this going to, like, I would have, it, it would have, it would have pushed me in other directions <laughs> that Puppet Master didn't. But clearly, if you listen to last week's episode, I didn't know where Puppet Master was headed either. <laughs> so, so then we see, just to push this sneaking around someone's house horror movie feel further, Sokka climbs up into the attic. So the, the two creepiest places in a house are the basement and the attic. So they chose attic yes. um, up into the attic. 
and he's up there and he finds a locked door. Also, the third scariest place is a locked door. <laughs> yes, in a basement or an attic would be right. actually the most scary place. Uh, and he looks through the keyhole and he to the room and he sees that it's empty except for a, one little chest that's sitting in the middle of the floor, which in and of itself is kind of creepy because it's sort of this big room completely empty with this one box little chest in the middle of the room so it's like it's like begging you to go in there and look at it so he uses his sword to jimmy the lock open while katara continues to protest and they walk in and Sokka picks up the small chest and here is where i noticed the music box music mm. a lot because it's almost like is the music coming from the box because because it's sort of the size of like a a, a big music box and Aang announces that they shouldn't be doing this. So, so he's now protesting. Uh, Toph tells Sokka to hand the chest over. She's clearly on Team Sokka at this point. Um, and she takes off her meteor bracelet and bends it into uh, a key and works at opening the chest. I thought this was super cool. It had never occurred to me that like Toph could do something. I mean, I, I know that we saw her kind of take that meteor and do different shapes with it. But I, I realized, like, oh, that is interesting. Like, the possibilities that that one little thing opens up is, like, so she could make anything to unlock anything. Like, that's really cool. I love that. Yeah. And I almost, I wanted to be, like, well, she's exceptionally brilliant, so I could see her just coming up with that. But at the same time, it's, like, in the Earth Nation culture, I think, or upbringing to be that resourceful with your bending, right? Like, we see, like, in... uh where Boomy lives, right? And like how they they move around objects like for civil works, but also mm -hmm. like you could totally see this man, I bet there are just some like great pickpockets or like I don't know, yeah, like criminals yeah. out there that are earthbenders. Yeah, and it it also is pointing to a theme of this episode, which is like open your mind up to the possibilities of bending. You know, it's yeah. like, oh yeah, you could do that. Why, like, why couldn't you do that? And mm -hmm. that's going to point us to a, a later theme of this episode. So Top finally gets the lock open, and just as she's about to open the chest, they hear Hama's voice. So this is the big thing you're afraid of, right? That the person shows up and you're where you're not supposed to be, or they even walk up behind you. And she says, "I'll tell you what's in the box." And uh, Sokka hands the box to her and she slowly opens it to reveal a white and blue comb, which even before she says anything else reads as a water tribe comb. It has the, it has the coloring and the sort of design that we would see from the water tribe, which is also tip your hat to this show that they do a good enough job of developing these cultures that you can see something and say, Oh yeah, I, I can identify that object. Yes, especially in an episode or actually in a season where it would stand out so much to all the red. Like, exactly. So, yeah, so stark. Uh, so Hama says, it's my greatest treasure. It's the last thing I own from growing up in the Southern Water Tribe. And Sokka and Katara look shocked. And then we have a commercial break from here. <clears throat> we come back. Katara says, you're from the Southern Water Tribe? Hama said, just like you, Katara. How did you know? Hama says, I heard you talking around the campfire. I wanted to surprise you. I bought all this food today so I could fix you a big water tribe dinner. Of course, you can't get all the ingredients. I can't get all the ingredients I need here, but ocean kumquats are a lot like sea prunes if you stew them long enough. 
And Katara says, I knew I felt a bond with you right away. And we see uh, Sokka apologize for sneaking around. Man, uh, you know how I like namings, like how they name people, what, uh, how they choose um, different names for characters. Do you know what mm-hmm. Hama means? I don't. Hama in Japanese means seashore or beach. So oh. I suppose if you were to look up the names in advance of some of these episodes, when you have, especially when it seems like a character that's just one episode, um, you might be able to figure out the plot a little bit from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. So we we cut to the inn at night, and this is the weirdest scene in this whole episode to me, and I'm curious if you have thoughts on it. Hmm. Uh, so it's the inn at night, and we see Aang run to the barn, and he's has like looks like either like a cabbage or a water. I think it's a melon, a watermelon, and he throws it to Appa, who puts who puts it in his mouth. And then Momo comes over and Appa spits out the watermelon and Momo comes and eats it. And then we cut away. And I have no idea why that scene is there. Uh, well, Appa really hasn't been in the episode at all. So there might be a question of like, where's Appa during all this, right? Like, I don't, I don't even know if we saw him around the campfire. So maybe they wanted to have him in there for continuity's sake. I don't know. <laughs> but at the same time, it seems like a weird choice, right? Like, I guess functionally, it would be hard for Momo to eat a, a, like a big melon. So like, he might need someone to chop it up for him. But it's just like, why are we including this? <laughs> yeah, and it's so fat. Like, I was wondering if there's a longer cut of this episode where that scene has more to it, and they just had to cut it down to that. It, it's it's the one of the most unnecessary things I've seen in this show because it's not a joke. It doesn't tell us anything. It's not entertain. It's it's just it's just like we had what amounts to probably six seconds. Yeah, it's very strange. It is strange. I wonder, and I can't even think of this scene when you when you talk about it. Like I can't envision it. It's probably that quick, right? Yeah, like- absolutely. I mean, it is seconds. Go back. I'm going to go back and watch the Cabbage Head. Go back <laughs> and watch this, and just ask yourself, like. Why did they include it? I know. I wonder if it's like maybe in the original cut, they built it out because in horror movies like Annabelle or others, it's like um, they'll have like the barn and you run from one building to the other building. Right. And it's like in that moment, it's a really tense, scary thing of like you're exposed. You don't really know what's around you. There's people disappearing. So maybe they had built that out to try to fill in that trope and then like just didn't have time. Yeah. Listeners, if, if, if you have a, a, a theory on this, Email us channel thirty nine hundred at gmail.com. I'm I'm actually like genuinely and, and I can't I because I don't want to get spoiled, I can't go and research this, but like I'm really <laughs> curious because it's it may be the strangest few seconds only because I don't know why it was there. So at any rate, so this scene happens. Uh then the gang sits we, we cut to the gang sitting down with Hama for dinner. And Hama serves them five flavor soup and uses water bending to fill their bowls. And Katara is thrilled to meet another waterbender. She says, I've never met another waterbender from our tribe. And Hama says, that's because the Fire Nation wiped them all out. I was the last one. I was stolen from my home. And we fade to a flashback of Hama's story with a young Hama at the South Pole. It was over 60 years ago when the raid started. 
we see ash falling from the sky and we see five fire navy ships launching fireballs at the village fire soldiers march on the village and fight with the waterbenders eventually the waterbenders other than hama are captured they came again and again each time rounding up more of our waterbenders and taking them captive we did our best to hold them off we see a group of waterbending women freezing a fire navy ship in the ice which is the one from the first episode. So now we know where that came from. Yeah. Uh, but our numbers dwindled as the raids continued. We see Hama alone surrounded by a hundred fire soldiers. Finally, I too was captured. I was led away in chains, the last waterbender of the Southern Water Tribe. And then back in the present, we see Katara put her arms around Hama. So it's interesting because... She is the last waterbender of the Southern Water Tribe, and Katara is the last waterbender of the Southern Water Tribe. It's basically that's what she says in that previously on. She says, I'm the only one. And Hama mm -hmm. was like, I also was the only one. I also was the last one. So they have a, a kindred connection in that way. So Katara puts her arms around Hama, and Hama says, They put us in terrible prisons here in the Fire Nation. I was the only one who managed to escape. And Sokka asked how she got away and why she stayed in the Fire Nation. And Hama said, I'm sorry, it's too painful to talk about anymore. Katara says, we completely understand. We lost our mother in a raid. I can't tell you what it means to meet you. It's an honor. You're a hero. And Hama says, I never thought I'd meet another Southern waterbender. I'd like to teach you what I know so you can carry on the Southern tradition when I'm gone. And Katara says, to learn about my heritage, it would mean everything to me. Okay. There's a way to watch this episode, I think, where you might wonder if Hama knew the whole time that Katara is a waterbender. Do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I'm trying to think how she could know. But maybe Waterbender knows Waterbender. Like, maybe you can sense it. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, I mean, she's with the Avatar. Like, that whole crew is pretty high profile. Even yeah. in a remote Fire Nation village. It is interesting, too, because we keep talking about how they're hiding in the Fire Nation. But it sure seems like people who, anybody <laughs> who's aware of what's going on is like, yeah, I could tell right away. <laughs> right. Because, because you guys stand out. Yeah. To find to find the echoes, Sokka's master could tell right away, yeah. right? Uh, Piando, um, uh, Hama can tell right away. So it's like, yeah, there is there is something about them that uh, that sticks out. So maybe even the fact that she's a bender is evident there. Mm. Uh, what I like in this is we get there's some stuff that we don't necessarily see as ominous. Uh, in the moment, but when you look back on it, it's very much so. I mean, we get, um, we get kind of Hama's mission here, right? Mm. Um, I'd like to teach you what I know so you can carry on the Southern tradition when I'm gone. That doesn't sound ominous. It sounds like that's nice. It's you know, yeah. But that is really dark when we learn what she wants her to carry on. And I think that's a, that's a moment to hold on to when mm -hmm. we get to the end of this episode, because the last line of this episode is really dark, especially if you think about that line. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, we cut to daytime, and now we really move into, we could call this episode Katara's Master, um, if we wanted to, to echo Sokka's Master, because we see Katara and Hama are walking through the hills above the village. So now we have Katara sort of broken off with Hama. And Hama says, growing up at the South Pole, waterbenders are totally at home, surrounded by snow and ice and seas. But as you probably notice on your travels, that isn't the case wherever you go. And Katara says, I know when we were stranded in the desert, I felt like there was almost nothing I could do. Hama says, that's why you have to learn to control water wherever it exists. Katara says, I even use my own sweat for water bending. And Hama says, that's very resourceful, Katara. You're thinking like a true master. But did you know you can even pull water out of thin air? And we see, we see her wave her hand and produce a bit of water out of the air, which she, she bends around her fingers and then freezes uh, the on points at the tips of her fingers. She says, you've got to keep an open mind, Katara. There's water in places you never think about. She turns and fires the frozen points like darts into a nearby tree. And Katara looks both excited by this demonstration and maybe a touch concerned. It's like the things that she's saying aren't that concerning, right? It sounds like something Boomy would say, or it sounds like something, I mean... Maybe this is concerning, but there are some jet vibes to it, too, like talking about having an open mind and utilizing your resources when you can't. Like, that is a very jet thing to say, uh, especially in a kind of charismatic old woman way that she she was showing. Um, So it's not really about the things that are scary, but it's like what she's doing while she's saying them, that it's Mm -hmm. like, that's where it's pretty eerie. Yeah, and, and it's it you know at one level it's like she does a magic trick. She pulls water literally out of thin air, right? Yeah. And um and it also points to one of those things where you were like or this whole time like isn't water just part of life? And it's like of course if we've all been in humidity there's water in the air and I've always and even when we saw them work with like clouds and and things like that, mm. I always made me wonder is there like, can waterbenders do more than we're seeing them do? And Hama's sort of saying, yes, in fact, you can. And I can teach you how to do it. Yeah. And even, like, the action of taking the the water from the air and then shooting swiftly those frozen darts. Like, that's just a very waterbender thing to do. Like, I could see Katara doing that same move when she's teaching somebody. Like, we've seen it a million times. So, it in a lot of ways, it looks pretty natural for what we know about waterbenders. Uh, but there's just that little bit of question that makes mm-hmm. it disturbing. Well, and so so here I want to introduce another thing that I think uh, this feels a lot like, um, which is episode three of Star Wars, mm. which is the which is the episode where um, Anakin, you know, kind of somewhat grown up Anakin, really starts to work with Emperor Palpatine. And mm. there is this, this, you know, this sense of like, oh, there, yes, the Jedi have trained you. You're a powerful Jedi. But did you know there's things that people haven't taught you? And I could teach you these things. And, and, and if we think about the way, you know, we've talked about the way that they show Hama, especially when they cut in tight with her and how she can shift into this kind of sinister thing. She can be very loving and like nurturing and mentor 
but she can all there. She can also flip into this darker image. And that's what Palpatine is like as well, especially in episode three. So to me, I mean, not that anybody wants to go back and watch revenge of the Sith, but, (laughs) but, but there is like, I feel like, like this, this episode leans a lot on some of that feel. And I mean, we've been hinting at this, like this is going to be about Katara being tempted by the dark side of her powers, which is exactly what Palpatine is doing. Yeah. This episode, I mean, that ends uh, Palpatine and star Wars. It's like, what is, what is great about that was, I mean, (laughs) what is great about episode three, (laughs) but (laughs) like you have this terrible person, right? Like you have Darth Vader and then you get the backstory and it's like, every individual little step that led someone from being a normal, kind, gracious person to being extreme. And like here we get backstory and there is an extent to which we're asked to empathize. And then at mm-hmm. the same time, it's like, man, it, you, you come out and you think like there is some justification, but I'm not sure where that line stops. Right. And like, um, I think those are questions both in Star Wars and in mm-hmm. this episode too. Yeah, and and you want Katara to level up. You want her to like Yeah. I would love her to have the power to pull water out of anywhere. But I like the way you put it. They're like clearly doing that if she could pull water out of the air like that's not crossing a line. Like that's just a powerful thing, but like are you tempted to say, well, what else can I do? And what else right. can I do? And where does that lead? And and this question is going to ask, this episode is going to ask, what happens if you cross, is there a line? And what happens if you cross that line? Mm-hmm. Um, and then this episode is going to get into that. So uh, while this is going on, we see Aang, Sokka, and Toph exploring the woods. And Aang says, this has got to be the nicest natural setting in the Fire Nation. I don't see anything that would make a spirit mad around here. So they're still playing the script of the spirit world. Top says, maybe the moon spirit just turned mean. And here we see Sokka snap as he gets really protective of UA. He says, the moon spirit is a gentle, loving lady. She rules the sky with compassion and lunar goodness. Um, (laughs) So in an episode without a lot of comedy, that's a pretty great line. (laughs) Also, I love that we, I love that UA is still on his heart. I think yeah. that's really that's really important. It would be lame if we had a whole episode with the moon in it the whole time and it doesn't bring anything back for Sokka, then it like doesn't feel like the love was ever really there, you know? Right, I right. Think we need it. Although I will say as a as a Sokka Suki shipper like <laughs> move on. Move on from UA, <laughs> big guy. Yeah, yes, absolutely. I'm I'm in the same boat. Um so then a man walks past them in the background. So again, we have this like things passing in the background. A man walks past them in the background and Aang gets his attention and says, can you tell us anything about the spirit that's been stealing people? And the man says, only one man ever saw it and lived. And that's old man Ding. And Toph asks where he lives. So we cut back to Katara and Hama walking through a field of red flowers. <clears throat> and Hama says they're called fire lilies. They only bloom a few weeks a year. But they're one of my favorite things about living here. And like all plants and all living things, they're filled with water. Again, that is becomes more ominous as we as we think about it. I mean, that's a benign scientific comment. But it's like, okay. 
because uh, one thing to say all plants, but she says all living things. And Katara tells Hama about the waterbender from the swamp who could control the vines by bending the water inside. And Hama says, you can take it even further. So again, here we're like, okay, yeah, you could do that, but what if you did this? She says, you can take it even further. And she spins around in the field and bends the water out of a huge circle of flowers around her, leaving the plants black and dead. She then uses that water to slice four times through this big jutting rock in the field. And Katara says, that was incredible. It's a shame about the lilies, though. And Hama says, they're just flowers. When you're a waterbender in a strange land, you do what you must to survive. Tonight, I'll teach you the ultimate technique of waterbending. It can only be done during a full moon when your bending is at its peak. Sam, this is such a good... I mean, they are fire lilies, like... The metaphor is pretty great. Mm-hmm. The idea that it's like if you can squash all of these beautiful fire lilies that are pretty um, non-combatant, like they're just there, right? They're just existing. But if you can squash all of them, then you can destroy the big stone in front of you. Like it's so, so good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even thinking about like literally the lilies of the field, right? Yeah. I mean, as, as a biblical reference, right? That these are this thing that, that have no care in that, you know, they're, they're okay. To, to reference something else, like it's like to kill a mockingbird, right? I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, you've read to kill a mockingbird, I presume, mm-hmm. right? Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and yes. even the, the phrase to kill a mockingbird, when that comes up in the story, you know, it's one of the things that, <clears throat> that Atticus talks about, right? That, that, it's wrong to kill a mockingbird because a mockingbird does nothing but make beautiful music. Right. And the, the lilies mm-hmm. do nothing but are beautiful. And in there, even this thing that Hama at least claims to love yes. and we watch her just wipe them out in order, right. to, in order to produce water to just do this trick really. Yeah. I mean, she's truly just destroying innocence and she loves it for its utility. And that's basically it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Katara says, but isn't that dangerous? I thought people have been disappearing here under the full, or during the full moon. And Hamasa puts her arms around her and says, oh, Katara, two master waterbenders beneath the full moon. I don't think we have anything to worry about. Oh. <laughs> so, so now we cut to the village at night and we see an old man nailing his door shut. And the gang minus Katara approaches. Aang inquires whether he's old man Ding. And with this distraction, he hammers on his thumb and says, can't you see I'm busy? Got a full moon rising. And why does everyone call me that? I'm not that old. Not ready to get snapped up by some moon monster yet at any, at, at least. This is the voice actor that I love. Like his old man voice is the most quintessential old man voice. It's like, I'm not that old. Yeah. It's, like, it's so good. <laughs> it's perfect. Um, the gang asks about the spirit that tried to take him and ding and 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 as he ta- as he's talking we hear like old school movie organs playing like it's 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 yeah it, it this just feels like an old like mgm monster movie or something um he says i didn't see no spirit just felt something come over me like i was possessed forced me to start walking towards the mountain I tried to fight it, but I couldn't control my own limbs. 
it was ju- it just about had me into the cave up there and i looked up at the moon for what i thought would be my last glimpse of light but then the sun started to rise and i got control of myself again i just hightailed it away from that mountain as quick as i could Sokka asked why would a spirit take people to a mountain and Toph says, I did hear people screaming under the mountain. The missing villagers must be there. And we see the gang stare up at the mountain in the dark. <sighs> so This is so much tension building. <laughs> yes. And even just the way, like, again, this can be a scene where it's just like confirmation about stuff that we're starting to figure out. But there is something really interesting when ding says and as i got to the mountain and this cave took me to this cave i looked up at the moon because i thought it would be the last glimpse i would have of light mm. it's like let's think about that sentence in a in, in like a children's show like yes. like that's a that's an interesting sort of existential moment of like, this is, I am acknowledging this is the end for me, or at least a kind of end for me. Yeah. And what he's describing is like demonic possession. Like it's truly, it's uh, something else coming over your body and controlling it. Like in the conjuring, <laughs> yeah. the conjuring three, yes. They're, like bodies levitating and moving without any kind of control or agency. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. terrifying. So we see Aang and Aang, Sokka and Toph running through the woods at night. And we see Toph stop and put her hand down on the ground. She says, I can hear them. They're this way. And the three of them run off. From there, we cut to Katara and Hama walking through the woods at night with the full moon shining. Hama says, can you feel the power the full moon brings? For generations, it has blessed waterbenders with its glow, allowing us to do incredible things. She breathes deeply and stretches out her arms, and we see her muscles tighten, and even the, her veins start to bulge. I've never felt more alive, and now her face looks increasingly sinister. This is one of those moments that makes me think of, like, uh, again, the end of, of Revenge of the Sith, like where senator palpatine becomes emperor palpatine and it's just like it's like the i can feel the power coursing through my veins this is like this Mm. this transformation moment you know um yeah and and it's it's like we realize uh we have now entered we've now entered into a different kind of danger yeah yeah um yeah or like x-men or like any kind of superhero movie there's always a question of like do my powers make me exceptional and superior and put me above other people and beings or should they be used to like prop us all up? Right. Like it's cheesy, but like, that's kind of the underlying question, right? Is like, what do you do when you have this kind of special power in your hands? And, um, and and she describes it as like something that was like blessed or gifted to her from her culture, like for generations and generations. Um, that's and, in, yeah. That's go interesting. For it, go for it. it makes me think about um, uh, this is a weird connection, but <laughs> Aristotle talks about you know that the the person who doesn't participate in the society is either a god or a beast. You mm-hmm. know, um, and and the, the way you the way you said that made made me think about that, which is like having this kind of special power, and especially at its peak, it's it's almost like you have this choice, and maybe this is the 
the dark side, light side choice, or or it's not even that because neither of these are necessarily preferable, right? That 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 you have this power does it make you a god? Does it make you a beast? Well, it definitely sets you apart from people, and maybe that setting apart is not the greatest thing mm. because because we're gonna see Hama, I think, struggle with which one she is. <laughs> You know, and I don't know that that either of them are are particular. I mean, this is also uh, we need to have our requisite Lord of the Rings reference. I mean, this episode we could also view through the lens of Lord of the Rings, where it's like you have been gifted with this particular power. How do you use it, or is the best way to use it to not use it and destroy it, or yeah, to yeah. not use it? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. because because is it possible to use it in a way that isn't ultimately deadly i think about galadriel when um when uh frodo offers her the ring and 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 you see her like say like what she would do with it and then but 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 it sort of becomes also she says like i would try to use this for good but like it would and then she becomes like this god monster thing in the image and it's like she realizes that that would also be this destructive thing yes i also think that um in this whole episode, to me, and maybe it's just because I just came off of a book, a uh, historical fiction about World War II, um, but it feels like there's also kind of some elements about genocide or cultural superiority, too. And I think that what this show has conditioned its audience to do is to say, when we meet somebody new, especially somebody who claims to be a master, we have to really consider, are they lining up with this kind of what we assume might be like the, the white Lotus or like the, the um, this like holistic mentality, right. Of like all of these elements working together, all the culture should be appreciated, should be uh, uh, like, we all need each other to create peace where here we have for generations, waterbenders have been blessed. Waterbenders have this and this and this, and we need to utilize it. And that to me, resembles maybe some of like the fire nation imperialist perspective too. It's Mm -hmm. just like another flavor of it, but shot through the lens of having survived a kind of genocide. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a difference. Right. And that is a part where it's like, that's where it's like, I feel, I really do like feel for her, especially when we learn about her backstory, but it's like, it, mm, it's building extremism in her. Mm-hmm. you know absolutely and i and i think this episode is gonna is gonna put us on weird sides of, of issues and weird mm-hmm. yeah weird sides of divide so uh back to ang Sokka, and toff uh they're running through the forest they approach the opening to a cave and toff says this is the place Sokka says i can't see anything down there toff says that's why you have me and she grabs him by the hand and leads them um running into the cave so deep in the cave, as they approach, uh, we see, we see a, a door illuminated by torches on either side. Toph metal bends the door open. Behind the door, they find people chained to the wall. And, they, and we hear people yelling, we're saved. And Aang says, I don't know. Uh, I didn't know spirits made prisons like this. Who brought you here? And one of the prisoners says, it was no spirit. It was a witch. She seemed like a normal old old woman but she controls people like some dark puppet master episode title drop. And Sokka realizes that this is Hama. I knew there was something creepy about her. And Toph says, I'll get these people out of here. You go stop Hama. 
Also important to note that everybody in that cave, it wasn't just like soldiers. It was like people of any age group. Like right. Whoever older, happened to be in the woods. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. like you have to assume that Hama knew who these kids were. Otherwise, they would likely be in the mountain, too. Yeah, she approached them. Yeah, because you know we know that the the Ash Banana Delivery Boy is there. For example, clearly, <laughs> clearly not, uh, clearly not a soldier. Now, what's also interesting about the structure of this episode is we and Toph, Aang, and Sokka all know something about Hama that Katara doesn't know yet. Because mm-hmm. we're going to cut back to Katara in the woods. And she's still trying to figure out, like, okay, what's happening? I mean, she's still ostensibly being trained by Hama, although now we know. So now there's this rush of, can they get there in time? Mm. You know, which is also, like, a great thriller horror movie thing of, like, there's now a person in danger who doesn't even know they're endangered. They are, you know, literally face-to-face with the demon, and, and they don't know it. Um, and so there's this race of like, can they get there in time or can Katara figure it out in time? And that's Mm -hmm. where we go for really the rest of this, uh, for the rest of this episode. So, uh, we go back into the woods where Hama and Katara are standing in the moonlight as the wind sort of swirls around them. And Hama says, what I'm about to show you, I discovered in that wretched fire nation prison. So we flash back to a young Hama in prison. The guards were always careful to keep any water away from us. They piped in dry air and kept us suspended away from the ground. Before giving us any water, they would bind our hands and feet so we couldn't bend. Any sign of trouble was met with cruel retribution. And yet, each month, I felt the full full moon enriching me with its energy. There had to be something I could do to escape. Then I realized that where there is life, there is water. The rats that scurried across the floor of my cage were nothing more than skins filled with liquid. And I passed years developing the skills which would lead to my escape. And we see her water bend towards a rat and sort of start to take control of it. Mm. Did you know that it was, I mean... Did you, my question for you, Sam, because I've mm-hmm. seen this before. Mm-hmm. Did you think that this was a possibility to blood bend? Like, was it a question that you had in the back of your mind? Well, I will say, as we've done interviews with people, this is one of those things that people keep mentioning of like, uh, oh, you're not to blood bending yet. You're not to blood bending <laughs> yet. Um, I will also say I pieced together a little bit that, that from Katara in prison, Mm. or in in that the the jail cell you know using bodily fluids on the outside to bend and then like this was all leading to this right because it's like okay you can use the water from inside plants and all living things are water so i was like i feel like we're heading somewhere now what i didn't know was what exactly it meant um Mm. you know because it could be that you shouldn't you be able to basically just explode people's hearts (laughs) with like bending the blood within them. Um, But then again, the episode's called the puppet master, which, so it's like, Oh, okay. So maybe, maybe this is what it is. So when you first see the rat stand up and you're like, okay, 
So like mm-hmm. she can control, I mean, which makes sense, right? If, if this is all just, um, if our whole bodies are fluid and you can bend f- liquid, right. Then mm-hmm. theoretically you should be able to do this. Um, so yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know when in the episode I was like, oh, I know where this is headed, but yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I felt like we series. were headed in some direction, but had I not heard the phrase bloodbending before, I don't know exactly that I would have thought of that. Sure, sure. I, I also really like this scene because in the flashback, it kind of has almost like a greenish grayish tint. It's like her cell makes Iroh's cell look like a mansion, like he has a lot of space. He has a bed. He gets food where she is. It's like, it's like those really sad zoo enclosements that were like back in like decades ago when like zoos didn't really care about the animals. And it's just like bars, right? Like it's tiny space. She is sitting head down. Her hair is like greasy falling in front of her face, which is also kind of like the ring style spooky. Mm-hmm. Um, And then you have her developing these skills where this is where it felt kind of like Frankenstein-ish to me, where it's like, you are playing with this, you are playing God in a place or in a way that um, is clearly an ethical dilemma. And you start with these littler creatures and then you build up and you build up, right? And it's like, yeah, I don't, it was done really well. I thought that, um, I wondered if they had, kind of thought like let's make this frankenstein like or let's you know like let's i wonder what the the inspiration was for the imagery in that scene yeah i mean it is it there is sort of a a mad scientist feel to this a little bit of like mm-hmm. what is what is possible and yeah and 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 what are the doors that you open up when you start to go down um start to go down these roads so she says you know blood bending controlling the water in another body enforcing your own will over others and then we see her controlling rats in her cage like puppets once i had mastered the rats i was ready for the men and we see a fire nation guard being taken over by hama's blood bending she controls him to take out his key and unlock her cell door And during the next full moon, I walked free for the first time in decades. My cell unlocked by the very guards assigned to keep me in. Once you perfect this technique, you can control anything or anyone. Now, what's interesting here is like, we know too much about Hama because even at, but even at this point, you're like, okay, so she was captured by the fire nation. Mm. She was imprisoned. She found a way out. So it's like, okay, so far you can still be Team Hama if you want. Yeah. Because the worst thing she did was to take control of this guard and had him unlock her and then she knocked him out. But it's like, she also, he also was a guard imprisoning her. So, yes, she took down her oppressor. And like, that's very much something that I would, especially in a hundred year war, like, (laughs) that is something that I would fully understand. Yeah. Uh, but then we move forward and <laughs> right. So, so, you know, and again, there's just this, this ominous line of once you perfect this technique, you can control anything or anyone. I mean, I feel like, so we've talked about star Wars. We talked about Lord of the Rings. We need to complete the triumvirate. Like this is very Harry Potter, right? This is the imperious mm. curse, isn't it? Is, is that, did I get mm. the, did I get that right? Imperious? Yeah. Is that? Yeah. Where and then that's one of the, uh, the, uh, the unforgivable curses, right? Is the, is the like taking control of another, another person. So this very much has that feel to it. 
right? Yes, but that, that, that is crossing a line with your power. Yeah. And in that, like in Harry Potter, it's not just in the moment that that's dirty and wrong and you're corrupting your power over another person, but it's like that has long standing problems for that person. Like they live with that trauma for the rest of their life. And like old man Ding, like maybe he's always been a little bit off. Like you get that when your nickname is old man Ding. But at the same time, like he was shaken by it and like clearly has this PTSD from being controlled. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so, um, so Hama says this, you know, you can control anything or anyone Katara says, but to reach inside someone and control them, I don't know if I want that kind of power. So Katara is, is realizing if we talk about crossing a line, she realizes that knowledge of this power crosses one line. Because up until this point, she didn't know this was a possibility. Now she knows it's a possibility, but she hasn't yet, she doesn't have that power. She hasn't done it, but she knows that it exists, which is in and of itself a little corrupting because it's always going to exist in the back of her head. Like, well, I could do that, right? Like that's that's yeah. something that is that is possible. Like and now Hamas, that she knows it'll all she'll always have to fight the temptation when she's right. put into a tough situation. Yeah. Right. And and it, it is sort of the way like with um when you think about the innocence of children, right? Like their their whole lives as they grow up, they keep learning about things that corrupt them in a particular kind of way, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah. well now that can't be unseen and that can't be like you know, and, and it's not that you need to always protect them from that because these are the realities of life. But there are all these things that you, when you think about like a newborn baby, you know, Augustine would say that that child is marked with, with original sin. But at the same time, they haven't experienced anything yet mm-hmm. and an experience like those things stick with you. Um, so Katara says, I don't know that I want that kind of power. And Hama says the choice uh, is now yours. The power exists and it's your duty to use the gifts you've been given to win this war. Katara, they tried to wipe us out, our entire culture, your mother. So she plays that card. Katara mm-hmm. says, I know. Hama says, then you should understand what I'm talking about. We're the last waterbenders of the Southern Water Tribe. We have to fight these people whenever we can, wherever they are, with any means necessary. Mm. So Hama is both giving her this power saying like, this exists and I can show you how to do it. And she's also making her case, Mm -hmm. you know, she's, which is interesting because it allows you to think like, well, she's not purely evil. Like she has motivations that are like understandable sensible i mean she was i mean again it's it's a dark thing to think about in a kid's show but it is sort of like uh one of the big questions of the mid-20th century which is like what do you do after the second world war yeah as a holocaust survivor what what do you do yeah you know do you you have this righteous anger this righteous Mm -hmm. feel for vengeance um you know, it, it, it reminds me of um, uh, the, the French philosopher Albert Camus wrote uh, an essay 
after World War II uh, called uh, Neither Victims Nor Executioners. And it's mm. and he's trying to carve this middle ground out to say like, well, what do we do with the Germans? How do we um, not just, how do we be something more than a victim without becoming an executioner, without becoming basically the thing that we hate? Because it's like, if, it's, if this is just retributive justice, that is just a cycle. Retributive justice is always just a cycle because then it just becomes blood feud, right? You killed one of us, we kill one of you, but then you kill one of us. And it just, it just becomes a cycle uh, and a cycle that escalates. And yeah. this, is, this is the question that Hama raises. So her, her anger is righteous to a degree, but mm-hmm. what, do you do, what do you do with righteous anger and the, the feeling of the need for revenge? Right. And I think it's really important that the conversation is between two people who with similar stories, they both, I mean, at points are are like prisoners of war, really. And they watch their family members die. They're both in a culture that was like attempts at genocide, right? Like, and yet I think it's important that they chose these two characters, not only just for the plot point, but also because it's like, those are the ones that should be having this conversation uh, where for me, if I'm talking about justice and uh, revenge and like the gray areas of uh, someone else's trauma or someone mm-hmm. else's pain, it feels a little bit disingenuous. Right. And so like when I, when I watch this, I want to try to be empathetic and say like, it would be, uh, <laughs> there are questions of complicity from people in the fire nation or in whatever, you know, whatever culture or, or government is, is, is perpetrating violence on people. Right. And it, 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 in there are, there is justification for when you grow up in a system that continues to subjugate you. And I think about like small personal tragedies that I've seen people go through. And I, I try to adopt this, this perspective of like, if that person, like, no matter what their choice was, if they had to endure that terrible thing, like, I could not judge them, right? Like, there are some things where it's, like, that trauma is so severe, like, at some point, I can't really be mad at them for going away, for never talking to me again, for, you know, whatever whatever their choice is. But then there are these limits of, like, when you start to perpetrate that onto another person and, like, dish out what you were served. That's, Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, and I think you know, we talked at the top of the show about generational things mm. too, like like this these things passing on to to generations, and um, you know, I I think as an American, my tendency is to want to go to examples like World War II because I feel like oh, I have a little bit of distance from that, and I feel like well, at least we were not on the wrong side of that. But I mean, the other the other example is something like slavery too, right? Yeah. Like to say like well like these the uh, effects of this echo down through the ages. So even if, yeah, I mean like, so, 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 so even if some of the people who are imprisoned there, you're like, well, they didn't do anything to her. It's like, but it's, it is about these systems as well. So like, I think it, it does become, it becomes very complicated to think about, um, to think about some of these issues. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, it's not easy to come up with a clear cut, way to describe justice, especially when you're outside of that. Like, I mean, if, if we had Toph here standing and having a conversation with Hama, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't play right, you know, cause it's not, I mean, she's had her own trauma, but it is not the same as Guitara's and Hama's trauma. And so like, right. yeah, yeah. I don't, 
don't know. There's this is a kid show, Sam. Yeah. This is a kid show. <laughs> but but I mean I think these are these are essential <laughs> these are essential human questions. Um and always have been, but they seem particularly poignant in twenty first century America. You yeah. know, I, I think the, these are these are questions which are still very much uh, very much alive. Yeah. So um so Katara uh, comes to the realization. It's sort of funny that it's like, okay, well, we've already been told this. <laughs> and Katara comes to the realization. It's you. You're the one who's making people disappear during the full moons. And it's like, yep, that's of course, of course she is Katara. Um, but again, mm-hmm. we've been privy to things Katara hasn't. Um, Hama says, they threw me in prison to rot along with my brothers and sisters. They deserve the same. You must carry on my work. Right. So here again, I feel like we have some um, this sort of mission statement, this this Hama mission statement, right? Katara says, I won't. I won't use bloodbending and I won't allow you to keep terrorizing this town. Uh, we see Katara's arm is then taken over by Hama's bloodbending. She says, You should have learned the technique before you turned against me. That even feels like Palpatine language too, a little bit there. Um, It's impossible to fight your way out of my grip. I control every muscle, every vein in your body. And we see Hama start to throw Katara around like a ragdoll puppet. And Katara begs for her to stop. From here, we see a shot of the full moon. And Katara's weeping on the ground and begins to stand and reach her arms out. And she says, you're not the only one who draws power from the moon. My bending is more powerful than yours, Hama. Your technique is useless on me. And we see Katara bend water out of the plants in the ground and throw it at Hama, who bends it back at Katara. And they match each other at bending until Katara finally starts to overwhelm Hama. I, I, I was thinking about why she was crying. And I think there's a couple reasons, right? Like, Clearly before when she saw the fire lilies being destroyed, like she was like, that's really sad. Right. And like, there's a lot of sympathy for nature. Right. And she is, she and Aang have both like cried over environmental disaster in the series. So there is a part and you know me, like there is a part where I want to read this as an environmental thing too. Mm -hmm. But, um, well, I will say when the, the, when the fire lilies die, that circle of blackness does look like, the spirit world episode, which is so clearly about mm. the environment, right? Like, like it is an ec- a clear echo of that. Yeah. And they have mentioned it a couple times in this episode. So I think we really are supposed to read a little bit into that. Um, and then it's like, I think she's crying for that. She's crying that. And then she's crying that she took her first small step into corruptive power and like it, corrupting innocence of these beings around her, like truly, taking out the life source and controlling them. And so, um, but, but I think it is important to, to maybe think about the environment in this scene. Absolutely. Yeah. So then Aang and Sokka enter and Sokka says, we know what you've been doing. Hama. Aang says, give up. You're outnumbered. Hama says, no, you've outnumbered yourselves. And she takes control of Aang and Sokka and throws them at Katara. We see Katara pull more water out of the ground and bend it at Hama. Hama bends a water shield out of water from a tree, and we see like the tree kind of explode as she's pulling water out of the the trunk of the tree. Um, And then we see Sokka, under the control of Hama, 
start to go at Katara with her sword. And Sokka says, it's like my brain has a mind of its own. Which, again, <laughs> great uh, great Sokka line. Um, and uh, I need to, to point out, <laughs> my daughter laughed out loud and thought the funniest line in this episode is when she is controlling Aang and Aang just yells out, this feels weird. <laughs> I'm not quite yeah. sure I get the humor in that, but she just thought that was the funniest, the funniest thing to say, maybe because it's such an obvious thing to say, but big fan it's of so, that line. Yeah, it's so Aang. No, I laughed out loud too. So she, she and I were on the same wavelength. So uh, Katara has to use water to freeze Aang and then Sokka to nearby trees, but she takes the time to apologize as she's doing it. Um, Hama says, don't hurt your friends, Katara, and don't let them hurt each other. So Hama bends Sokka and Aang out of the ice and controls them to attack each other. She's brilliant. Like that is a brilliant move to say like, oh, I'm not outnumbered. You've outnumbered yourself. So then she's using them as weapons against Katara. When she realized that doesn't work, it's like, okay, I'll just use them as weapons against each other and like mm-hmm. make Katara figure out how to deal with this. Um, so Katara is forced in order to stop, um, in order to stop Hama, Katara is forced to use bloodbending to stop them and then on Hama to stop her. And Toph and the prisoners from the cave come up and arrest Hama and say, you're going to be locked away forever. And as the authorities are leading her away, Hama says, my work here is done. Congratulations, Katara. You are a bloodbender. And Hama laughs as she's taken away. And Katara cries in fright. And we close on Katara crying under the full moon. I love the classic horror movie ending, right? Of like, you think that evil is vanquished and you think that the entity is gone and then it, yet it still lives on in someone else. And it's like, oh, maybe there's a sequel, right? Or just like the ultimate fear that evil still persists and it can't be defeated, right? And um, one of the lines a little bit earlier, Hama says, I control every muscle, every vein in your body. And so like very much what she's saying in the end is like, you are a bloodbender. What I just told you and made you do is now in you. Like it has physically changed you. And I am, I like whether you like it or not, my influence is in your body. You know what I mean? Like I am, I am helping to control you and, and yeah. And, and yeah. And if we pay attention, and as I said, if we pay attention to what she says earlier, she keeps saying, what I want to do is pass along, Mm. pass along me to you, pass along my powers to you, pass along my traditions to you. I want you to pick up my work to become what I am. Yeah. And you realize that's why she says, you know, my work here is done. Like I've done it. Like yeah. I wanted to make you this and now you are that. And it's, it, it, it has sort of a, uh, to think about horror movie things, it has sort of like a vampire or werewolf mm. kind of feel to it where it's like, well, now you're infected right yep. now. Now you have, whether you like it or not, you are the thing that you hate. Yes. And maybe even more than that, it's not even like it's a slow infection or something. She's like, once you bloodbend, what are you? You're not somebody who has bloodbended. You are a bloodbender. Like that is right. now your identity. And we watched her move from from somebody who had no idea what it was to somebody who had knowledge of what it was. And we talked about how that can have this corrupting impact. 
now she not only has knowledge, but she has the experience and the know-how and mm. she knows what that power feels like. And you know what power almost always feels like? It feels empowering. It feels like, <laughs> like right? So it's like, so, mm -hmm. so this sets up, I think, you know, one of the big questions going forward in this episode. So like, there is a chance, and I don't think this is true, there's a chance that this really is just a monster of the week filler episode. And it's like, okay, we'll move on. And this will never come up again. I don't think that's true. I think Katara is a bloodbender now. So, so now what is this going to be a constant temptation for her an occasional mm -hmm. temptation for her? How are they going to build out the story there? I promise there will be a moment at least where she's faced with, if I were to use this power, I will unlock this dark side of myself, but I may be able to achieve the end that I desire. I mean, because if we think about, if we think about Anakin Skywalker and what drew him to the dark side, it wasn't just power. It was a particular power. He wanted to be able to bring the people he loved to save them and to bring them back to life. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what drew him down this, into this this dark cave right so is katara gonna have her moment where it's like bloodbending may be the only way to 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 achieve this end so do i allow myself to go a step further and then yes. the other another question is like has she already crossed the line is is mm. this a line she is this something she can't come back from um she's seen the monster she's capable of being you know by looking by looking at hama what do you think what do you think because when i when i hear hama say congratulations you're a bloodbender it sounds so definitive right and i don't know like what is your thoughts on that um do you think it just takes one time for her to be to, for that to be who she is like i don't i don't know if i believe that well yes and no i mean to be who she is she she i mean it, it is definitively a true statement that she is a bloodbender mm. but that doesn't mean that that needs to be her identity sure and she needs to see that as who she is that's the question mm. is is will she will she be able to have mm. this not be part of her I mean, and that's that. That's something I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? Man, I don't know either. I. Yeah, I don't. You're right. It's something she can do. It's not something that should, hopefully, should define her. Right. And it's like just because you have the capability, um, doesn't mean. Yeah, man, it's hard. I don't know. Well, well, it is. It is. It's. It is. I mean, if we're if we're thinking about this sort of language of guilt and innocence, right? That mm. she is now. She now has <laughs> bent blood on her hands, right? Like, yeah. like she. She is now. She now carries around this kind of guilt. Now, mm. so the question is, how do you expiate that guilt, right? How mm. do you? Can she forgive herself? Can she put that behind her? Um, yeah. and, and, and I think more importantly, like how much will that temptation be? This is, this mm -hmm. is back to the ring of power stuff. It's like, once you've felt that power, can you give it up? Yeah. You know, can you relinquish power? Because 
that's the that's the the theme in in Tolkien. That's I mean that's also a theme in in Christianity, right? Is like is it is about it's this isn't about how do you attain power and how do you wield power, but how do you sacrifice power? Yeah. Yeah. I think what I would say I don't I don't know that I would call her a bloodbender because I mean, it's, it's it's going to be a continuing question, right? And like, the, it's supposed it better to be. End. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, it should end kind of in a in a big question mark of like, what does this do to Katara and how she sees herself and how she sees her abilities? But she had initially never wanted to do it. She and she was put in a place where she saw that Hama was able to control the Avatar, like the most powerful being on the planet. And, um, and that is the only, literally the only time I think that, that truly she could feel justified in using that, you know, like, don't you think, I mean, like there was no way out of it. Like she couldn't really innovate out of that situation. Think about, think about, um, okay, let's maybe take a different route to this. Think Mm. about the psychology of like addiction though. Mm. So like, do you be because because that's the other thing with the ring of power, right? Think about Frodo understands what it is, but he still sits there and has this obsession with it, right? So, yeah. like, can she get it out of her head? Yeah, that I don't know. I mean, I yeah. hope again, I, I don't know. I, I hope I like Katara, so I actually don't hope this for her, but <laughs> narratively, I hope that this is something that it just haunts her because it should, yeah. Like if if she's able to just move on from this, it feels a little like, oh, I felt like you built some stakes that really weren't there. <laughs> I think they're the people who make this show seem smarter than this. So I think, mm. I think this is now something that that she'll. There will at least be moments she has to wrestle with. Yeah, yeah, I would think it would have the same, uh, like psychological impact that. Uh, Aang had at the end of season one when he merged with the water spirit and like was the catalyst for a lot of destruction, even though he wasn't, it wasn't within his control. Right. But like it was his power that enabled it uh, along with this other spirit. So it's like the joining of these two entities, he didn't really have any agency and yet he still participated and, that's, I guess that is pretty similar to Katara in this situation. Let's also think about it this way. So we said that there are parallels between this and Sokka's master, right? Mm. <laughs> Structurally. So before Sokka's master, do we see Sokka, Sokka wield a sword very much? Talk about swords very much? <laughs> no. No. After Sokka's master, in this episode, we see him. Um, all his ghost stories are about swords. When he feels troubled yeah. in the night, he pulls his sword. Even shopping, he uses his sword, right? Like that this, when you're a, when you're a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail, right? Yeah. Now Katara has learned bloodbending. Will she constantly be seeing opportunities where it's like, oh, I shouldn't, but like, you know, actually I could solve this problem if I just did. Like, like once you've crossed that line, doesn't like my, it would be interesting if they did an episode where for Katara, every, the solution to everything kept looking like bloodbending. And it's, it's almost like needing to, to get off a drug to be like, I just need to, I need to, you know, to, to not, to not, but, but it's constantly there of like, especially if it is person is in pain, you could relieve that pain. If you just did this thing, 
Yeah. Now, doing this thing is going to destroy part of you, but is it better to relieve people's pain? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, again, like, I don't know where the show wants to go with this, but they have now opened up such an interesting thing because if they don't, I mean, there's no way that they're going to turn her into a puppet master, a, b- <laughs> a benign puppet master. Um, but, but it, I don't know. I, I just find it, I find it really, really um, interesting the directions this could go. Yeah. And like, again, they end the episode like a traditional horror where the haunting is continuing. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Maybe not, maybe it won't be manifested outwardly, but like she is haunted inwardly with what she's done. Right. And now the call is coming from inside the house, right? It's inside Katara. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Other things I uh, that I loved about this episode, you mentioned this at the top too, that um, bending has dark sides. And if water mm-hmm. bending has this kind of dark side, um, we've seen, we've seen um, Zhang Zhang talk about the dark side of fire bending already yeah. right he seems haunted just by being a bender it makes me think about air bending and earth bending and like those two i presume have dark sides as well right yes and when you think about like human anatomy right like the water is in our blood but also we breathe air like we need air in our lungs and so there was a question i had of like so can an airbender at least even momentarily like bend your breath out, you know, like bend, like I presume they could bend the air out of a room. Right. That's terrifying. And like a lot of power or or like, um, or if you're a firebender, like, can you bend the warmth out of someone's body? Like, could you freeze someone by taking, yeah. Like, I don't really know. Oh, interesting. Firebending is confusing to me and I still don't really know how it works, but like we've seen, um, We've seen Zuko like warm his body through mm-hmm. firebending and like can he take it out too? And so like it's just this episode opens up so many more questions about like, okay, well, if blood bending is a possibility, now there's all these other ones too. Right, right. Um, I also thought a little bit about we've seen Sokka's master. We could think of this as Katara getting a new master in a dark kind of way. Um, what about Aang's firebending master? Like that's gotta be coming soon, right? We I think we <laughs> yeah. I feel like we need that. Um does Toph is Toph gonna have a an a mentor moment? We've never actually seen her. Uh we guess we saw her when we first introduced to her as having a earthbending teacher, but he doesn't seem particularly mm. interested in her mastering anything. So <clears throat> she very well could already be at the the apex of, of earthbending for all we know, but I'm sort of curious to know, like, are we going to see, is Toph going to have also a, a, a moment of leveling up in this way? Cause we haven't mm-hmm. really seen her level. I guess metal bending we saw. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, other things I have in my notes, Iroh is in prison still. Like right. when is, we haven't been there in a while. When is this going to get, uh, when is this going to get addressed? Um, yeah. We spent so much time at the first half of the season I guess the first couple episodes with Fire Nation royalty and then just really have it for a while. Yeah. So I, I feel like what's going on. I feel like we're moving in that direction. There's only 12 episodes left. <laughs> so like that's that's just kind of a, a, a crazy thought of how much ground they have to cover. Um, and the last question I have is have. 
at what point have they just blown their cover in the fire nation <laughs> they keep moving <laughs> around and like big things kind of are happening around them uh it feels like there there definitely are people who know who they are in the fire nation which makes me think about you know how they are potentially building allies even in this village they're building allies in terms of hey we helped we actually helped you recapture a water bending prisoner that mm. you took 60 years ago um to help so we're do, we're help i mean that is a really weird connection to think about that they're you know yeah. like like who they end up teaming up with um to the extent that i kind of and i and i think this is a positive thing i kind of forget they're in the fire nation yeah it feels it feels like the fire nation the actual people in the fire nation don't feel all that different than earth nation people or earth, earth kingdom yeah. people you know it's just like yep they're just sort of people and then there are these power structures around them there are all these mm -hmm. other things but when they encounter people they're just they just sort of seem like people yeah and and the people and people receive them like travelers like they did in the earth kingdom too like it, it, even in their disguises it, it's assumed that they're travelers and you kind of help them out you give advice you give some support yeah at the same time, these are people who are potentially complicit or, yes. or, or definitely complicit in these larger things that are happening because in war crimes, <laughs> right? Because we can say like, yeah, well, these folks, you know, sure. They live in the fire nation, but they don't have anything to do with this larger war, except clearly some of them work at this prison, right? Like, yeah. like, like they are, they are surrounded and in the world that they live in is, um, rests upon the destruction of people, mm. destruction of people groups, um, the oppression, the oppression of people, the prosperity yeah. they have. I mean, this feels like you kind of British empire, well, an American empire for that matter, but, but British empire at the peak of the, uh, the slave trade, right? Like the, the empire that reaches across the world, colonizing, imperializing everywhere. Yeah. And you know, that, someone living in England may not be directly part of it, but they are the wealth of the nation that they live in. The power of the nation they live in is resting on all of this oppression. Yeah. And then that's an interesting point you made about Hama going back to prison. Uh, because now the, the Aang gang is kind of complicit in, in perpetuating that too. Like they have I helped to imprison a waterbender. <laughs> Yes, they have helped the Fire Nation. Yep, yes, put her uh, put an old waterbender woman in jail, like who has suffered for sixty years. Yes, it's it's like it's honestly very sad at the end. Like she is clearly evil, but yeah. it is it is really tragic. This episode walks such a weird tightrope if you stop <laughs> and think about it, and the fact that it they pull it off and that it's an episode where you're like, that was really great. But if you start to pull at the edges, it's like, yeah. wow, I don't, I don't know how, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know how I feel about it. And when I say pull at the edges, I don't mean it falls apart. I mean, Oh, actually it makes this way more complex and interesting. And they don't even bother to make those cases super obvious. I mean, yeah. they make her pretty monstrous to be able to feel like, yeah, it's good. She should be in prison. It's like, maybe she, they should like, send her back to the South pole and let her yeah. reconnect with her people. And uh, yeah, 
Right. But, but also, that, like, maybe she's too far gone. Yeah. And, and you know that the prison that she's going to end up in, where they said, you will stay there for the rest of your life, it is going to be her in shackles again, receaving water in shackles. Like, it's it's not going to be... It's going to be gonna worse, be worse than, than the before. one she broke out of. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, uh, I'm glad that it ended the way it did. I'm glad that it ended with Katara crying and feeling distraught and haunted because I wouldn't want to have the Aang gang talk it out afterwards. I don't think that that would have served the story at all. I think it's better to just end on a lot of feelings and questions <laughs> and mm-hmm. concerns. So, so I will I will end this episode because we're we're approaching our dangerous two hour marks. Um, <laughs> I am so excited for whenever I start an episode and I see Hama or Bloodbending in the previously on to just know like because I because I've seen the next episode I know it's not a plot point in the next episode, um, but I just wonder like when are they going to address it? And I know whenever they do, they're going to have to seed it in the previously on because they need to remind um, mm-hmm. our young, our, our, our young viewers, like, remember this, we're going to, we're going to come back to that. So mm-hmm. that's going to be a great previously on. I'm going to get really excited when I see Hama's face or hear her voice or watch the, I'm sure we'll get the like picture of her arm with the veins sticking out and oh, be like, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. It'd be like the same excitement with Ko. I think they're both great villains. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I gotta say, with twelve episodes left, I don't know that we're re- revisiting Ko, <laughs> but I would, I would love to. I'm here for it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's also like when I see White Lotus in a previously on, I'm gonna get really excited. There's, there's a number of things where it's like those are those are things that are going to excite me um annie yeah. this has been this has been a great uh, a great episode of avatar to talk about this has been i think this is a really good episode of this uh, of this show uh if you've made it this deep into the episode we would love to hear from you you can email us uh 3900 uh, channel 3900 at gmail.com um you can go to avatar with academics.wordpress.com to find old episodes of the show we would love to hear from you We'd love to uh, interact with you on your thoughts uh, on this sort of watch through of Avatar. We have just 12 episodes left, um, but I have a feeling there's it's going to get pretty propulsive as we go <laughs> as, as we go forward here, just because there is not a lot of time left. Uh, Annie, thanks for for joining me on this episode, and we will be back next week with Book Three Fire Chapter Nine. Nightmares and Daydreams.